My name is Vivian Fisher, and I manage the African American Department here, and I want to welcome each and every one of you, and oh, and by the way, Happy New Year to everyone. On behalf of our CEO, Dr. Carla Hayden, our Board of Trustees and Directors, it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker this evening in celebration of the life of Martin Luther King, Jr. This afternoon, we're going to talk about the celebration and life of Dr. Martin Luther King. During a dream, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. meets actor Gregory Gibson Kennedy at the Lincoln Memorial. Dr. King shares four speeches, how he wishes to be remembered, and how fear is no longer a factor in his survival. Mr. Kennedy portrays both Dr. King and the narrator. A professionally trained actor, Gregory Kennedy has performed in numerous feature films, theatrical productions, and commercials. In 1998, Kennedy was awarded the YWCA Racial Justice Award. He serves on the Education Advisory Board of the National Basketball Hall of Fame. And from my talking with him, he's also a native of Pittsburgh. And we talked about how I loved how the Ravens beat Pittsburgh this year. So without further ado, please welcome Mr. Kennedy Gibson. Gary Gibson Kennedy to the stage. Good afternoon. First of all, folks, thank you so much for coming to the Enoch Pratt Public Library today to celebrate Dr. King. The program that I would like to present for you today is a program that I wrote uh, probably about 10 years ago. It is a program, the first program I ever wrote for my company, Educate Us Productions, which is located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, and I, it is through a dream that I once had. At the end of the program, if you should have a question about Dr. King or myself, please feel free to answer that question. I'll open up the question and answer at the end of the program. But right now, I'd like to share with you what happened in that dream. But first, you see, several years ago, I had a dream that I met the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at the Lincoln Memorial in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Miss, I was sitting on a park bench when a colored gentleman approached me and he sat at the opposite end of the bench. Well, sir, we had conversation. He would do a speech for me. As a matter of fact, folks, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would do four speeches for me in my dream. And this afternoon here at the Enoch Pratt Public Library, I'd love to share my dream and those most important speeches of Dr. King's with each and every one of you. But before we get involved in the dream and the speeches, I'd first like to tell you a little bit about my friend, <clears throat> the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., born January 15th, 1929. He was born the son of a Baptist minister, the Reverend Martin Luther King, Sr., schoolteacher mother, 
This is Alberta King. To Georgia, folks, into a South that was full of segregation and unfair laws. And this segregation, they were very basic. Sir, they were very simple. A simple thing like getting a drink of water in a public area. Well, at that time in the South, for colored folks, it truly wasn't that simple, folks. No, you see, my friends, there were water fountains marked for colored people. And there were water fountains marked for white. Going to the public restrooms. Public restrooms marked for colored people. And public restrooms marked for white. Eating in the restaurants, miss. Oh, we all love to eat in restaurants. Well, imagine going to your favorite restaurant. And in that restaurant, there's a section marked colored people. And sometimes that section had a rope that divided it from the rest of the restaurant. Sometimes there was a curtain that was pulled so that the colored people couldn't be seen. And also in that restaurant, usually there was a front counter. Well, that front counter, folks, it was off limits to colored people. It was against the law for them to sit there. Sir, riding on the bus. Well, yes, the colored folks had to ride to the very back of the bus. And if the bus filled up, they had to give up their seats to whites who didn't have one. Now, Martin Luther King Jr. would be affected by this law when he was eight years old. Because when Martin Luther King Jr. was eight years old, he had to give up his seat on the bus. Miss, he didn't want to give up that seat, naturally. But he did. It was the law. He was coming back from a spelling contest in Atlanta, Georgia, with his teacher, Mrs. Brown, when the bus filled up. And Mrs. Brown told Martin that he had to give up his seat. In all respect for his teacher, he did. But that moment would stay with him for many years to come. At the young age of 15, Martin Luther King Jr. would go off to college. Morehouse College. All colored, all male college in Atlanta, Georgia. And my young friend, I forgot to mention, back in the day, there were schools for colored people. And there were schools for white. After graduating from Morehouse College, Martin Luther King Jr. moved here to the north. Matter of fact, moved right down the street to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where he would study at a place called Crozer's Seminary near Philadelphia. And you know, my friends, it was the first time in his life he would have the opportunity to go to school with whites. And he loved the idea. Oh, sir, he thrived in the system. Because at Crozer Seminary, Martin Luther King Jr. didn't worry about what water fountain he drank out of. He didn't worry about what restroom he used. He didn't worry about where he sat in the restaurant. Oh, and on that bus, miss. On that bus. Miss Martin Luther King Jr. always sat in the very first seat of the bus. On his way into Philadelphia. After graduating from Crozer Seminary in 1951, folks, number one in his class in this new system. He decided to stay here in the North, but he moved on to a place called Boston University where he would study for his PhD or his doctorate degree and enjoy the same types of freedoms he enjoyed at Crozer Seminary. In 1952, he met a beautiful young woman. So she's studying to be an opera singer. Her name was Coretta Scott. 
1953, they were married and she became Mrs. Coretta Scott King. And in 1954, folks, now the Kings would be faced with a huge decision. And the decision would be either to stay here in the North, accept a nice cushy teaching position at Boston University, or miss return to the South, to Montgomery, Alabama, which at that time was the cradle of the Confederacy, the hotbed for discrimination. Always a man looking for a challenge. Now the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he decided to return to Montgomery, Alabama, where he became the pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. And my friends, on December 1st, 1955, he was thrown headfirst into the civil rights movement when a colored woman who I know all of us have heard of by the name of Mrs. Rosa Parks, she refused to give up her seat on a bus. Matter of fact, on that day, December 1st, 1955, Dr. King would set up a rally and a march down the streets of Montgomery, Alabama. Folks, on December 5th, 1955, he would set up a bus boycott where the colored folks in Montgomery said, we're not going to take it anymore. We're not going to ride that bus until this discrimination ends. The bus boycott lasted for 381 days. And they almost put that bus company out of business. And that was the first rally, first march for Dr. King, with many more to come. He set up an organization called the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And their job now would be to govern the rallies throughout the South. So the battle cry for the new movement was non-violent resistance. You see, Dr. King would say time and again, we must learn to fight the power of hate with the power of love. So yes, there would be many rallies, many marches for Dr. King. Mister would be a rally in a march in 1960 where Dr. King would proudly watch colored college students as they sat and hit those lunch counters all over the South, protesting the discrimination that was happening in the transportation systems throughout the South. There would be a rally in a march in 1962 called a Freedom Ride, where together colored and white would hop on a bus, miss, and they would ride that bus into the South to protest the discrimination happening in the transportation systems throughout the South. There would be a rally in a march in 1965 where Dr. King would march into Selma, Alabama, folks, to help the colored folks there get registered to vote so that they too could have a say in our wonderful government. And of course, there would be the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s most famous march. It was a march on Washington, D.C. that would end at the Lincoln Memorial where on August 28, 1963, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would deliver a speech to a crowd of over 250,000 people gathered at the Lincoln Memorial, folks. It was a speech about a dream Dr. King had for America. It was a speech about a dream Dr. King had for a free and just America. It was a speech about an America, my friends. They could be equal for everyone involved. Colored, white, everybody. Miss, this, my friend, is where my dream begins. Because I had a dream. It was a conversation with a friend. 
And if you remember, folks, I mentioned that several years ago, I did have that dream where I met Dr. King at the Lincoln Memorial. I was sitting on a park bench when a colored gentleman did approach me, and he sat at the opposite end of the bench. Sir, as I looked at him, I thought, wow, this guy looks familiar. So, Mrs., I went to ask him who he was. He just stared at the Lincoln Memorial. And he said, I once gave a speech here in front of a crowd of over 250,000 people. It was a speech that would move a nation. <laughs> Sir, now I knew who he was. So as I went to introduce myself, he stood tall. Miss, he stood straight. Staring at the Lincoln Memorial, he started with, I have a dream. That one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and sons of former slave owners will one day be able to join hands at a table of brotherhood. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day my four children will grow up in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day in Alabama, little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and little white girls as brothers and sisters. I have a dream today. And I have a dream. Of freedom ringing from every hill and molehill of Mississippi. And when we allow for that freedom to ring, uh, when we allow for it to ring uh, from every village and every hamlet, every state and every city, we We'll speed up that new day when all of God's children, black men and white men, uh, Jew and Gentile, Protestant and Catholic, can join hands. And together we'll sing those Negro spirituals of old. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. <laughs> it was something, Dr. King. <laughs> Thank you. The way he spoke, folks, the way he used his voice. I'm telling you what, miss, this man was an outstanding speaker. Oh, my goodness. And he could fill up a room with that voice. Miss, we were sitting, standing outside. Miss, I remember in my dream how all these people kept trying to come and get closer and closer to us, miss. They wanted to see who had just made that speech. But you know, ma'am, it seemed to me they could never get quite close enough in my dream. <laughs> and then he turned to me. And he held out his hand. And as he went to introduce himself, I told him there was no introduction needed. Though so you see, he had just done so with his signature speech. 
his most famous speech. And that's when he asked me, Miss. Miss, he asked me if I could tell him if he was still remembered in our time. And immediately, sir, I told Dr. King, I said, Dr. King, your birthday's been made a national holiday, sir. It's celebrated the third Monday of every single January. And he said, that's nice. Oh, yeah, 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 this holiday thing, it didn't mean anything to Dr. King. It really didn't. But that's when he asked me, miss. Miss, he asked me if I could tell him if he was remembered by you. And you. And you. And I immediately told Dr. King I'm writing a program about him. Sir, I'm going to take this program into the schools, into the community to celebrate him. And he told me that was great. He told me that was the ultimate compliment. But then, my young friend, I had to tell Dr. King that I'm fumbling for material because I wasn't quite sure what it was I wanted to say about him. And he said, perhaps I could use his speeches, miss. And he would give them to me, folks. Sir, give me his speeches. But there was one little catch. There's always a catch. <laughs> you see, Dr. King told me if I were to try to do those speeches, sir, he said, I would have to try to do the speeches as him. <laughs> with his style, with his character. And I immediately told Dr. King, I said, Dr. King, now that's impossible. I said, nobody could do those speeches as him. With his style, miss. With his character. And miss, you know he told me something, and I'm telling you right now, my mom used to tell me when I was a little boy growing up, I remember every time, every once in a while she'd say to me, you know, nothing is impossible. If you work hard and you try hard, you can accomplish anything you put your mind to. But I got to tell you, I'm ashamed today, folks. Because as I got older, and we thought we got so much smarter, we forgot about what mom had told us. So now today, I'm here to remind, Dr. King was there to remind me of it, that nothing is impossible. And if we're willing to work hard, miss, if we're willing to try hard, miss, we can accomplish anything we put our minds to. So I told Dr. King I'd give it my best try. I told him, I said, Dr. King, I'll give it my best go. And he said, that's all I can ask. Give it your best go. So, you know, sir, he told me he once wrote a speech about how he'd like to be remembered by all of us. He said, Every now and then. We all think realistically of that day when we will be faced. With what is known as life's final common denominator. That's something we all call death. And as every now and then I think about my own death. And every now and then, miss. I think about my own funeral. Oh, miss, I don't think about it in a morbid way. But every now and then I think about what it is I would like to be said. And I'd like to leave the word with you here today. If any of you are there when they should celebrate that day, if you can find somebody to talk about me, please tell them not to talk too long. And if any of you are there when they should celebrate that day, please, sir, tell them not to mention uh, that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That's not important.
tell them not to mention that I have three or four hundred other awards. That's not important. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. But I would like for somebody to mention on that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for you to mention on that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I'd like for you to mention on that day, sir, that I did try to be right about that Vietnam War question. And I would like for you to be able to mention on that day, miss, I did try in my life to feed those that were hungry. I would like for you to mention on that day, miss, I did try in my life to visit those that were in prison. I would like for each and every one of you to be able to mention on that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love and serve all humanity. Oh, and my young friend, if you would like to say that I was a drum major and I led that parade, please, say that I was a drum major for peace. Say that I was a drum major, my young friend, uh, for justice. And say that I was a drum major, my young friend, for righteousness. And all the other shallow things these awards and all, sir, they will not matter. You know, sir, Dr. King told me he wrote that speech. He said there'd been many times in his life people tried to hurt him. Dr. King told me he wrote that speech, folks, because there had been many times in his life people tried to kill him. Miss, he told me he wrote the speech after the first attempt on his life. Oh, an attempt that not too many people know happened here in the North, folks, not in the South. And an attempt that not too many people know was done by a colored person. And Dr. King, my friend, he started to tell me about that day when he was stabbed in New York City in 1958 by a colored person. And he told me the letter opener that he had been stabbed with, sir, how the blade had gone so far in that the tip was resting on the edge of his aorta. And if he had just sneezed, he would have died. And he told me, Miss, how when he got better, he had received cards and letters from all over the states, from all over the world. But you know, Miss, he told me there was only one letter that he could remember. He said, several years ago, I was in New York City autographing the first book I had written drive toward freedom. And while I was sitting there autographing books, a colored woman approached me. She said, are you Martin Luther King? 
Now, I was looking down, writing at the time, and I said, yes. And before I knew it, I felt something pounding on my chest. Miss, before I knew it, I had been stabbed by this woman. I was rushed to Harlem Hospital. It was a dark Saturday afternoon. The blade had gone through. And the x-rays revealed that the tip of the blade was resting on the edge of my aorta. Now that's the main vein, my young friend. In 1958, if you were to poke a hole in that, you would drown in your own blood. And that's the end of you. Came out in the New York Times the next morning, sir, that if I had merely sneezed, I would have died. Well, about four days later, after my chest had been opened and that blade removed, the doctors, they allowed for me to wheel around in the wheelchair in the hospital, sir. <laughs> and they allowed for me to read some of the cards and the letters that had come in and from all over the states, from all over the world, miss. Kind letters had come in. But there was this one letter. I will never forget. I had received a letter from the president, the vice president. I forgot what those letters said. I had received a letter and a visit from the governor of New York, and I forgot what that said. But, sir, there was this one letter. That I will never forget. And it simply said, Dear Dr. King, I am a ninth grade student from the White Plains High School. And although it may not matter to you, Dr. King, I would like to mention uh, that I am a white girl. I read of your misfortune. I read of your suffering. I read that if you had merely sneezed, you would have died. Well, I'm just writing Dr. King to say that I'm so happy you didn't sneeze. <laughs> you know what, Miss? I got to tell you folks here today at the Enoch Pratt Public Library, I am so, so happy that our friend Dr. King didn't sneeze too. Hey, think about it, folks. If Dr. King would have sneezed, well, miss, he wouldn't have been there in 1960 to proudly watch those colored college students, miss, that they sat in at all those lunch counters all over the South, protesting the discrimination that was happening in the restaurants throughout the South. Ma'am, if Dr. King would have sneezed, ma'am, he wouldn't have been there in 1962 to proudly take that freedom ride where together colored and white got on the bus, ma'am, and they rode that bus into the South to protest the discrimination happening in those transportation systems throughout the South. And you got to realize, folks, some of the folks were hurt bad when the buses were tipped over. Some of the folks were hurt bad, my friends. Those buses were lit on fire. But together, miss, colored and white, 
They kept that movement alive. If Dr. King would have sneezed, miss, he wouldn't have been there in 1965, miss, to proudly march into Selma, Alabama to help all the colored folks there get registered to vote, folks, so that they too could have a say in this wonderful government. And sir, if Dr. King would have sneezed, sir, think about it. He wouldn't have been there. August 28, 1963, to tell that group of 250,000 people gathered at the Lincoln Memorial about the dream he had for our America. To tell them about a dream he had for a free and just America. To tell those folks about an America, my young friend, that could be equal for everyone involved. Colored, white, everybody. And I realized, if Dr. King would have sneezed, miss, he wouldn't have been there. April 3rd, 1968. To tell that group of sanitation workers gathered at the Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee about the final dream he was allowed to have. You know, friends, about that final dream where he was allowed to climb all the way up top to the mountain. He looked out over. And just like I'm standing here today, he was able to see all this beautiful promised land. So yes, I'm extremely happy. And I hope that every one of you folks that have taken time this Sunday on Dr. King's birthday are happy that our friend, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., started to tell me about that day, son. April 3rd, 1968. And he started to tell me how he was on his way back to Memphis, Tennessee, my friend. A place he had been one, year one week before, holding a rally, a march for the sanitation workers in Memphis, because the colored sanitation workers were making less money than the white sanitation workers. Folks, they were all doing the same work. Rally, the march, it turned into a riot. People were hurt. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., sir, he had to hide in the back seat of the car to escape from town. Oh, let's remember, the battle cry for the new movement was nonviolent resistance. You know, Dr. King would say time and time and time and time and time and time and time again, we must learn to fight the power of hate with the power of love. So, miss, he told me he had to go back to Memphis. So, miss, he tells me he has to go back to Memphis to make this wrong right. And, sir, he told me how when he got on that plane in Atlanta, the pilot said, oh, the plane's been guarded all night because this Dr. King is going to be aboard. And he says the plane had been checked and it had been rechecked and it was okay. Let's head on into Memphis. And he said when he got into Memphis, it was a cold and dark day. And he wasn't feeling very well because the threats were coming in from all over Memphis. There's somebody in Memphis. They wanted to hurt Dr. King. One man in Memphis, sir. He went there to kill Dr. King. They said he wasn't feeling very well. They said he asked his best friend, Reverend Ralph Abernathy, if he go speak for him at the temple that night, and he was a good friend, he was a close friend. He said he would. 
But when Reverend Abernathy got to the temple, that's when he called Dr. King. And he said, look, man, you got to get down here. These folks at the temple are yelling and screaming. They want to hear Martin Luther King Jr. speak. So they were talking about folks. They needed to hear the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speak. So he said he got in the car. And on the way, he was trying to think about what it is he's going to say to these folks. And that's when he thought about the new dream, miss. That new dream. But he was allowed to climb all the way up top to the mountain. Look out over. And see all this beautiful promised land. So Missy told me when he got to the temple, he stepped up to that podium. He told me he stood tall. Dr. King said he stood straight. And he told those people. I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't matter to me now. I've been to the mountaintop. Like many, I would love to live a long life, long longevity as its place. But I'm not concerned with that now. You see, he's allowed me to climb to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. So I want you to know today, sir, that I probably won't make it there with you. But I want you to know today that we, as a people, we can get to the promised land. So I want you to know today that I'm not afraid of anything, uh, not fearing any man. Uh, my eyes have seen the glory. And the coming of the Lord. With that, there was a loud blast. Sounded just like a gunshot. Miss, my dream was over. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., this guy was gone. You know, folks, I tried and I tried to get back to that dream. But we all know, like any good dream, you can never get back to it, sir. <laughs> and the loud blast. Well, thank goodness, it wasn't a gunshot at all. Oh, no, no. Just a car backfiring outside my window. But you know what, ma'am? It ended my dream. I'll finish the story for you. It was the very next day. April 4th, sir. 1968. While standing on the balcony of his motel room at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Yes, miss. There was a man hiding. 
Yes, sir. His name was James Earl Ray. And yes, miss. He was hiding with a high-powered rifle. Now, whether he shot the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for sure, we'll never know. Oh, sir, no. You see, Mr. Ray, he died in April of 1998, and he took that secret right to the grave with him. But what a do, no. And this is definitely a fact, miss. Later that evening, our friend, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., miss, he did die. And when he died, his dream, it did start to come to life because America did start to change. For the better, oh, folks, don't go, no, no, no. We have not achieved Dr. King's full dream yet. Oh, no, unfortunately, we still got a little ways to go. And achieving the dream in this 21st century, achieving the dream in what we're calling the brand new millennium, it will be left up to each and every one of us in this room today. It will be left up to each and every one of these young people in this room today. Because today, these young people represent the promised land. So that's why it's so important. That's why it's so important, my young friend, to dream your dream. Please know this, miss. You've got to dream your dream. And know that when you dream your dream, please, my young friend, you dream a good dream. When you dream that dream, please, dream a fair dream. And when you dream a dream, most important of all, most important of all, Please, don't be afraid to work hard to make your dream come true. And remember, nothing is impossible. If you're willing to work hard, miss, if you're willing to try hard, son, you can accomplish anything you put your mind to. I'm going to leave you today with a little poem. Folks, it's a simple poem. You know, miss, this, this, this is a, it's a very simple poem. But yet, it's a powerful poem. Because it's Dr. King's favorite poem. And it's about starting today. It's about starting right now, each and every one of us in this room. Let's start right now and every single day. Especially my young friends. Strive to be the best that you can be. Please don't be afraid of it. Because you see, Miss Dr. King said, everybody can't be the big tall tree at the top of the hill. That's why it's okay to be that shrub in the valley. As long as you strive to be the best shrub on the side of that hill, Miss. Oh, Miss, don't be afraid to be the shrub if you don't get the chance to be the big tall tree. I'm telling you right now, son, everybody cannot be that main highway. But in this life, oh, son, you're going to get a chance to become an incredible trail. Folks, if we can't be the sun, we're all still stars. Come on, man. Let's shine bright. You know, in this 21st century, miss, in this brand new millennium, 
Please do not let anybody tell you it's by size that you're going to win or you're going to fail. I'll tell you what we got to do. We got to get started right now. This very minute. And each and every day, each and every day, when you wake up, you get up and you're making yourself pretty in that mirror. Look in the mirror and tell yourself, man, say today. Not only am I just pretty, but today, I'm going to strive to be the best. Don't be afraid of it. When you're getting ready and you're going out and saying, today, I'm going to strive to be the best. Please don't let peer pressure, miss, stop you from being the best because it can stop you cold in your tracks. That kid that doesn't want you to be successful, he'll tell you so. Don't let peer pressure stop you from being the best. But each and every day, folks, and everybody in this room who's taking time to come here today, and I thank you so very much, let's start right now. Let's say today, 3.14 in the afternoon, Let's strive to be the best. But the most important thing, guys, strive to be the best. If you're going to be a sanitation engineer, strive to be the best. If you're going to be a doctor, strive to be the best. You know, miss, if you're going to be a school teacher, strive to be the best. Whatever you do in life, please, strive to be the best. Hey, miss, you know what? Most important thing, be the best at whatever you are. My friends here today at the Enoch Pratt Public Library, I want to thank you all so very much, but the most important thing, have a fantastic day. Thank you. Thank you, folks. Yeah, you love to, Ms. Fisher, sure. Thank you so very much. Thank you. That's very kind. You know, folks, thank you so very much. That's very kind, and I, and I appreciate that very, very much. Um, again, my name is Gregory Gibson Kenny, and my company is called Educate Us Productions. I did that on purpose. Educate Us Productions, because everywhere I go, people say, why would you name your company Educate Us? And I said, because it's a show. I like to put on a show. But in that show, I want to teach you. I want to educate you. Because a lot of things I'm going to tell you, a lot of people don't know. But I also want you to be entertained at the same time. I don't want you to just sit there and hear a lecture. I want you to be entertained. I want you to be, get a little enthusiasm. And, and, and I want to entertain you, and I want to educate you to, at the same time. That's why I call the company Educate Us Productions, educating us in history with theater. I am an actor. I am a writer. And uh, I made the decision about 16 years ago to walk away from trying to do commercials and TV movies and all those things that most actors do want to do, and I, I wanted to do as well, to start a company educating especially young people in the schools on African-American figures in history. So this was the first program I wrote for that, that comp my company, Educate Us Productions. It's titled, I Had a Dream, A Conversation with a Friend. And also, I wrote a program on the life of Jackie Robinson. Jackie crossed the line. I also do a program on uh, Mrs. Rosa Parks. And the program is titled, Rosa, Please Keep Your Seat for Me. 
It's through the eyes of a young boy who was on the bus the day Mrs. Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat. And now as a grown man, he's returning to share that story with everybody. And also, folks, I do a program on the life of Mr. Bill Cosby. Also, I have a program that I do on a slave. Not too many people know who this man is. And it's a shame. Even I didn't know who he was until the uh, celebration of the Lewis and Clark expedition in 2003 through 2006. And I'm ashamed of that myself. But I went out and I found out about this guy. And I said, you know what? I got to do a show on this guy. His name was York. Can I see a show of hands for how many people have ever heard of York, the slave that went on the Lewis and Clark expedition? I see, oh, gentleman in the back, I see his hand up, they got two over here, that's three, four. Oh, Miss Fisher, we know, you're the librarian, well, you, you better, if you don't, we, we're all in trouble. <laughs> and, and back here. So we're talking maybe six people have heard of York, of the Lewis and Clark expedition. I would ask you, please, to pick up a book which is titled In Search of York, and it'll tell you his story. There aren't a lot of books out there on the man. But I found this book to be incredible, and that's why I've got most of my information on it from. It was called In Search of York, and uh, it was a neat story. It was a neat story. And so the program is just simply titled York. And uh, it starts with the singing of Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, and ends with the singing of Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. As a group, we all sing it together, and it's, it's, it's a neat program. I like it a lot. My newest program is, is on the life of a gentleman by the name of uh, Louis Armstrong. Satchmo. And it's called Satchmo, the Louis Armstrong story. And uh, also, I do a program on a Hispanic gentleman, baseball player. I grew up on, you know, having the opportunity to watch the play and, and also an inspiring guy. His name is Roberto Clemente. So I do a program on him as well. Coming back to tell the story of his life, number 21 with the Pittsburgh Pirates and uh, it's quite a thing. I, I honestly, I had an opportunity to do the program for his family in Pittsburgh. Uh, last summer, and it was quite, quite, quite uh, an incredible, an incredible experience. And their response was uh, also very incredible. Folks, after every program, I do like to take questions from the audience. And if you have a question about Dr. King, or if you have a comment that you want to make about Dr. King, please, hey, it's Dr. King's birthday, so happy birthday, Dr. King, you know. Uh, and tomorrow we celebrate Dr. King Day. And if, if you're not going to a celebration, Please, take one minute. You know, I don't know, a lot of people going to the mall, a lot of people going, you know, here, there, the other place. But before you do that, take one minute and say, thanks, Dr. King. Thanks. It's your day. Thank you. Like I said, I don't really think he, it mattered that much, Dr. King, that we have a holiday on him. But uh, I think we can thank him anyhow. Let's open it up. Do we have some questions or... Comments? Miss? Is it Miss Bar Miss Miss Barkley? Miss Barkley, we spoke outside. I know we did. Please. Uh, I heard a wonderful sermon one time. Uh, uh, I think it was an excerpt of a sermon that Dr. King did on overcoming hate with love. And it was just so striking. It's a Christian doctrine that's very difficult. It's uh, and it. It, it takes all the hallmark right out of Christianity. But it was a kind of courage that you can only duplicate in, in uh, nonviolent resistance. Mm. And I think of the young kids in Syria who have stuck to nonviolence. 
Uh, it's starting to become a civil war now, but about 4,000 people in Syria have lost their lives. They're following the example of Dr. King. Um, and I also just wanted to mention, I should get your card, because you've probably never heard a song written about Rosa Parks that I think you'd be interested in. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I think maybe one of the schools I was at, they played it for me. I, maybe once I've heard it. Um, there's a song about Mrs. Parks. There's a song about uh, Jackie Robinson. Everybody got a song. And it's <laughs> As I travel. As I travel to certain schools, um, kids, you know, it, they sometimes. As I travel to certain schools, sometimes the kids, they, they, they want me to hear these songs. They're like, Miss Kenny, Miss Kenny. Hold on a second. We can, we're going to play a song for you. And I'll be like, okay, go ahead. Let's do it. And uh, so I've heard, I think I may have heard the song on Mrs. Parks, but hey, I'd love to hear it again, without a doubt. She is my favorite person in history, Rosa Parks, without a doubt. Thank you so much for that. Thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing. Truly. Another question, statement or comment, folks? Yes, miss. Oh, yes, 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 yes. And, and what's your name, please? Miss. Ms. Winhouse? Ms. Winhouse asked, folks, she asked, could I spell the name of, of this person I'm talking about, York? And it's just like a peppermint patty. Yes, York. Yeah, Y-O-R-K. And, and actually, I'm glad you asked that question, Ms. Winhouse, because everybody always says, well, what was his last name? And I said, he didn't have one. He didn't take the slave. He was Lewis, uh, William Clark's personal slave. But he never took his last name, as many slaves did. He never took his last name. Uh, he's named York because his father, who was also named York, who was William Clark's father's personal slave, it was sort of a hand-me-down thing, his son became the child's uh, slave. Yes, yes. And, and he ne they never took that name, but they were joined. York, their name, they got their name York, Ms. Winhouse, because they were born in Yorkshire County, Virginia. It was so weird because I was driving, uh, I was going to Durham, North Carolina, to do a program uh, two summers ago, and I rode through Yorkshire County, and I was like, "This is crazy," you know. I saw the big sign, Yorkshire County, and I thought, "Oh my goodness, York," as you know, his father. That's that he was named after the Yorkshire County. They took, they just took the first name York off of that, and that's what you know. He was his father was named York. He named his son York, and there was no last name. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you for your question. Another question, please. Yes. That's one you got to stretch on, huh? <laughs> oh, I thought you had a question. I thought you had your hand up. Okay. Uh, my name is Brian, by the way. Thank you, Brian. Um, I was, a, you know, being young, I'm only 27, so, you okay. know, studying, you know, a lot of black history, that's what I do. You know, it's like my life thing. I don't go to school or anything like that. I just like to learn about my culture, my history, and where I come from, kind of ground me, center me a little bit. And I used to, wasn't quite a fan of Martin Luther King. It's fine, know, I hear that quite often from young Because a lot yeah. of people get caught up in the, the ideology of Malcolm and Martin and yeah. so many other great leaders around that time. And um, one thing that changed me was I started to know more of the speeches that he had done yeah. prior to the ones that we hear about so often. Similar to like, I have a dream mm -hmm. or I've been to the mountaintop. Because I've heard a a sermon, I believe. One was called a uh, real long sermon. Real, real long. It's called Operation Breadbasket. Okay. 
I heard that one, and I also heard uh, why I opposed the Vietnam War. And as I started to, you know, study more about his stance and what things he were doing outside of the, you know, um, more or less nonviolent, it was more like a reformist type person, a person that would see the situation and reform and change a lot of the things that were currently in play. Because a lot of people have passions and dreams about changing things, but they don't have any idea how to how to do it. a system. Yeah. So my question to you is, when you did decide to, I, I could you consider this to be a monologue, right? Uh, That's exactly what yeah, it is, Brian. It's a monologue. All of them are monologues. All the programs yeah. that one man shows. Yes. I just make sure you use the correct terminology. You're fine. About Martin Luther King in your studies, as far as how you were picking things together. Um, when you did start to hear of or run across a lot of these speeches, what was your stance on him? Was he considered still truly revolutionary in his approach and how he was trying to change things? Did it kind of water down a little bit of that um, hug me, you know, make things better type attitude? Or was he really truly trying to change things and that the perception that we have of him as far as him being uh, pacifist in a sense, somebody that was just really like letting things go. He was more hands-on than what people know about. Well, it's a great question you asked, Brian, and thank you for asking it. I, I've always looked at Dr. King as inspiration to me. And the reason I've done that, Brian, is because I grew up, I'm 54 years old. So I'm 11 years old when Dr. King is assassinated. And I, I don't think what a lot of people, especially young people, realize, the impact that makes on you. When you are there and you hear of a man who is trying to change things for you and then somebody kills him, you know. I mean, we're following this man. And we're saying, oh, Martin Luther King Jr., he's going to make things better for everybody and all of a sudden he's dead. And I think what I'm saying, you have to see the emotion that, is, that everybody else has about this man. You know, we're watching grown women cry. We're watching men cry. You know, neighbors cry, white and black, over Martin Luther King. And I think that's when the change started. You know, I've always looked at Dr. King as just a peaceful man. You know, I've always looked at him that way, just as a peaceful man. You know, and I, I sometimes I go out and people want me to compare Malcolm X and Dr. King. And, and I say, you know what, I, you know, Malcolm X... Uh, he, you know, he had he was one one way, but he ch he changed. He changed and he came into another form as well, and it started to agree with some of the things Dr. King wanted to do as well, you know. But Dr. King had a line. He had a straight line. He went down and he and he kept that agenda of change, like another guy I know who's trying to make change and is finding it hard to make change. <laughs> I don't know him that well. Only when I see him on TV and, and you know, and I watch as much of him as I can. But he made a huge impact on my life because of what he did, his peaceful form of, of demonstration. And I, I always thought to violent, I'm not a violent person and never have ever agreed with violence. So for me, he was the right choice. Did I answer your question okay? Yeah, yeah, you, you did. You the things you did. I just also, I just wanted to do more further clarity because he, even in his nonviolent approach, he did dynamic. Anything. Like the bus boycott. Yeah. We consider that you know, Oh, yes. But economically, truly not. You know what I'm saying? Economically, it put the bus company out of business. 
It put the bus company out of business, and the bus company kept operating because they didn't want to fall and say, oh, we lost to this guy. So they kept going. But they had no money. The, the, the people, that are, and then if you go and watch the film, the day that, the, you know, when the bus boycott starts, before the bus boycott starts, the buses are packed. And most of the people are black in the back. After the bus boycott starts, you look at the buses and they're empty, which cripples the bus company. Crippled it. But he's, they're not going to give in to this black man. So they keep the buses running on, on almost no money at all. So that's a win for Dr. King. It's a win. And I grew up in front, you know, I try to tell my kids and mine because I don't get caught up in the difference between more racist and more racist and so forth and so forth. Everybody has different ways about me. You know, about changing things. So Mark, when he, when he did that, when he made that approach, Dr. Mark, when he made that approach to boycott something, it was truly saying, I'm going to really show things for what they are. I'm going to highlight and show how much of a force that we, we work together, how things go. And it was a part of how things were. Yeah. And it was like, you know, once the poor people that were segmented back in the bus, you pulled them off. You show them economically, socially. Economically, he killed them. You know, you know, and, and I try, I try to say my friends accepted when they hear about it. Oh, man, these people, they throw rock at him. And yeah, they spit on him, too. Don't forget that one. And they, they, they spit on him, and they threw rocks on him, and they shot him with hoses, and they did everything possible to defeat him and make him violent, and he would never do that. May I ask you a question, Brian? What do you do? I, I, I mean this in a very positive way, because as I hear you speak, you speak very well. You know, you have a very nice voice. And I, my suggestion to you, if you are a reader and, and you like it, because you're here at the library, and I saw you downstairs, we watched the game, a little bit of the game. You were sitting right in back of me, and I heard you speak then. Do you do, you do any theater? Have you ever thought of that? I think you should. Well, I think you should. I think you might want to look into it, son. Because I, I think once you look into theater and what you could, how you could use your voice in theater, because you have a voice. And you have a very good voice. And, and, you, and you articulate well. And you know what you're saying. And you know what your through line is. Do you write? You know what? I'm going to tell you. That's why I'm standing here today. I love to write, you know, I, I, you know, just doing those things. And that's what got me where I am today. You know, having my own company, having the ability to travel around the country and be invited like wonderful people here at the Pratt to come here from Pittsburgh to do my program here. You know, Friday I was in New York City doing some schools there. You know, I go back home, then I go back on the road again in another week. But you have that ability. And I think you're missing out on something. I really do. I really do. I know in Baltimore there's a wonderful theater scene, and I, I'm, I'm not sure what the name of the black theater company here is in Baltimore. The Arena Players. Maybe you need to go down to the Arena Players and talk to those folks and say, can I just sit in on some rehearsals? It might be your thing. Man. It might be your thing, honestly. I, I think you need to do that. And that's just a suggestion. I, you know, I don't want to tell anybody what they need to do. But uh, I just listened to you and meeting you downstairs and now listening to your questions. And you're curious about a lot of things. So I think you might, need to, you might want to check that out. Because if you're writing, you can do so many things with writing. It doesn't always have to be what I'm doing. You can do poetry. You can do this. You can do that. And figure a way to get it out there and put it in the public. 
I'm looking at all the programs today. Uh, Ms. Edmonds and I are speaking outside. She showed me all the programs they're bringing into the Pratt. And I'm like, you do all these programs? And I said to her, I said, you guys do all these programs? She said, Thursday night we had such and such. Last night we had such. Oh, man, you're living in Baltimore. You've got, you got an outlet here. The schools here in Baltimore, what? 90, what, probably 95% African American in the inner city. And once you get in there and you start talking to those kids, then you can expand. You need to look into something, son. I'm, I'm telling you, man. I, I see something really, really, you know, sometimes you can look at a person and you can see something. And sometimes it's the person that's looking that can see. And maybe the person that's sitting there doesn't see it. But the person on the outside sees it. And there's something real special I see. So I just want to, I want to lay that on you. Okay? Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. Can we Appreciate take it. one more question? I can take as many as you like, sure. Definitely. Sir, you had a question. I'm sorry, we went on, but you had a question. Sir, I have something I wanted to add, and I think it depends on when you were asking it about the thing of the revolution, I was certainly going to agree with you, but I just wanted to point out people are quite heavily from Boston, Washington, the social Author's name is Walter Rauschenbusch, and it's um, the Church in Crisis. I believe is the title of the book, but it was written in it was written in 1907. But Dr. King um, borrowed quite heavily from that, as well as his uh, uh, respect for for Gandhi when he mobilized his nonviolent philosophy. So those are real good sources that I just thought I'd, I'd share. But while I have that microphone, I would like to ask a question. Yes, please go ahead, is, sir. Is anyone seeing a connection between the current Occupy movement and, and anything that Dr. King may have stimulated in our society? That's my question. That's a good question. That, that is a wonderful question. And what's your name again, sir? I'm sorry. My name is John. John. Yeah, you know, my wife and I, she's sitting right over here, and we watch and we talk all the time. And I always tell my, my wife, John, I said, how come nobody's marching? We're all tied up in this, this thing and these people who are trying to keep folks down. You know, we're cutting programs here. We're cutting programs there. You know, for the folks that need it the most. How come nobody's protesting? Occupy Wall Street, occupy the, you know, the, the 99%. Yes. I'm glad you see. I, I thought there were similarities there. I maybe I thought I was the only one though. You know, I didn't thought, you know, I thought because I thought, wow, this is this is interesting. This whole thing is interesting. But now, now it's got to be put on its feet. We got to put this on its feet. And I think, and I, and I always tell my wife, I say, as soon as the weather gets changing and it gets a little warmer, I think, especially going into the election, we're gonna see more protests. We're gonna see more marching. I hope so too. I hope so too. It's what we need. Because we need to start to show people that we are united. Yeah, we're pretty much divided here. I mean, we've, we're kind of divided, but we're also, we can unite. And we can show that by marching. Maybe another march on Washington is necessary. It may be. I'm not maybe, it is necessary. We do need another march on Washington. And I, I don't know if everybody expects President Obama to come out and speak at that. I hope he doesn't. But we need somebody to step up and speak at that, at that march on Washington. You know, we need somebody to get up there and say, you know, come on. We need to come together. We need to start to put this thing together. Because this is a great country. But it can also be a very bad country if we let it. 
and the things that are starting to develop in, in you know in other countries. You know, but if we we, we need to put this thing on its feet. It, it needs to walk. It needs to walk. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. And I thank you for sharing that with Brian as well. Thank you so very much. I can take as many questions as you have until we're ready to, you know, wrap it up, Ms. Fisher. So whatever you whatever you have is fine. Folks, thank you for thank you for coming. Okay, yes, very, Ms. Very, very quickly. Um, Thank you. Yeah, my name is Trudy, and um, yes, Trudy. I, when when I was growing up, I think one of the speeches that I did not appreciate, but I have learned to appreciate as I've grown older, is Dr. King's speech on Vietnam. I believe it's the Riverside. He was given given that Riverside Baptist, and I'm just wondering. My question to you is: Given America's current foreign policy challenges, do you think King, if he were alive today, would encourage us to go back and rethink and and reread that speech because? So much of that speech, when you read it today and you recognize what's happening, it, is, it was prophetic at the time that he, that he delivered it. Well, yeah. I mean, everybody's so quick to go to war. You know, look at Iran now. I mean, we're talking about Iran. We're talk now, we're talking about going to a country that's developing a nu nuclear weapon. You know, I think you're exactly right on that, Trudy. Uh, yeah, we, we need to go back and visit that. You know, Dr. King was right. There's no need to go in there. They didn't know to go in Vietnam, but we did because they didn't give him the respect. They didn't give him his say, you know. And I hope that President Obama thinks this thing over. I don't think he's going to go in there. He's trying to talk to these folks, which I think, and I always say to my wife, I said, why don't people talk anymore? Why don't we always get so, just want to jump in and hurt somebody, you know? Why can't we talk about this? Nobody's talking. And so I hope that he will talk about it, you know. President Obama, I, I don't just, you know, I, I, I may be his number one fan. I don't know. You know, I may be. I mean, I, I, my best friend the other day told me, he said, I'm upset with President Obama. And I said, what do you mean? Why? He said, well, he hadn't done the things he said he was going to, you know, gee, he had, you know, I said, well, you know, I said, that's like you coming up to me and everything you ask me, I say, no, I don't want to do it. You know, I said, so let's look at that side of it, too. You know, I said, but if we can get this man in for the next four years, I think he can really make a difference if we let him. So, yeah, we need to think about these things. We need to think about war. I mean, who wants to? We're going to kill each other. Eventually, we're going to kill each other. You know, why can't these all these countries sit down and say, look, it would, wouldn't, it would make my day if they all said, let's get rid of all of our nuclear weapons. Make my day perfectly. Well, it won't happen. But yeah, so you're exactly right. They need to look over that and say, you know, maybe we do need to follow that course. Definitely. Hey, ladies, thank you for coming. Appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Uh, okay, Trudy. Okay. One last okay. Uh, Sir? I more or less had a, a comment for us. Please. Please. Sort of that I want to get some Yes. It is a sacrifice to, to face a, a power struggle that, that they're facing. And this is why it didn't become effective until we get back into the mindset of we have to have to actually put our own personal safety, our own well being.
What's your name, sir? Father Mr. Mr. Hurd? Thank you, Mr. Hurd. Thanks for sharing that. You're exactly right. Thank you so much for sharing that. Definitely. Definitely. We're going to wrap things up, folks. And what I would like to say in my wrap-up, you know, I always say, I want to thank everybody for taking time to come today. There's, an, there's a, you know, I, I, most people in Baltimore say there's an important football game on today. And I, I bet for Baltimore it's important. I'm from Pittsburgh. So, <laughs> and I did watch a little bit of the game. But, and I know it's important to folks, and I know that outcome is important. It's a big thing. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come and spend it with us here at the Pratt. And again, here at the Pratt, you know, I want to thank all the folks for having me in, Ms. Edmonds, Ms. Fisher, you know, all the folks that made this happen today. And could we give them a round of applause, please? Thank you. Thank you so very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, folks, I, I hope that everybody has a wonderful day. And as I said, tomorrow, I don't know if you're going to a celebration or not, but, uh, you know, celebrate at home. Take a minute. Take a minute. And I always tell my school kids, you know, on that Friday before, I said, when you, Monday, when, before you go to the mall, or before you get on trip, your PlayStation, take a minute and just say thanks, Dr. King. You got a day off, thank him. You know, it's a holiday, thank him. But most of all, thank him because we've come a long way. We've come a long way in the time that since Dr. King's death. And as I said in the program, we still got a little ways to go. We still got a little ways to go. And you all know what that means. Thank you, thank you. I'll be at the door. As you're coming out, please stop by, shake a hand, say hello. I'd love to say thank you each and every one of you personally. God bless. Have a fantastic day. Before you leave, let's give Mr. Kenny a warm welcome of applause for his wonderful rendition of his dream with Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And as he stated so eloquently, thank you so much for coming to this prep program. And there are refreshments outside, so please do partake of the refreshments. Thank you again, and I hope you have a wonderful Dr. Martin Luther King celebration tomorrow. Thank you.